Welcome to the History of Christianity podcast with Stephen Bedard. This episode is a part of a series of lectures that I gave for a course on Jesus in the Synoptic Gospels at Tyndale University College in Toronto. I encourage you to check out the webpage for that program, which is tyndale.ca slash vcp, and also check out my webpage at historyofchristianitypodcast.com. And if you want to support this podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash hopesreason and support in any way you are able. Thank you and God bless. We spent a lot of time looking at the Jewish context of the Gospels. We're going to take a much quicker run at the Greco-Roman context, okay? This is only going to take a couple minutes. So we might not think of uh, much of Alexander the Great. He might not be heavy on our minds, but he does influence us, and it does influence the Gospels and the, the New Testament world. Basically what happens is when Alexander the Great came in to Asia and he conquered uh, Judea and all of, all of Persia, one of the things that he tried to do is instead of just uh, holding the empire together with military might, he tried to promote Greek culture. He wanted to have something that would tie it together, uh, some kind of common culture that would be the cement that would do the work that thousands and thousands of troops uh, couldn't do. And so part of that was spreading the Greek language. And uh, because of Alexander the Great, the Greek language spread far beyond the borders of Greece. And a lot of that Greek uh, culture came in too. And so that actually was part of what was going on in the story of the Maccabees that we were talking about earlier. And even though the Jews would say, They fought against that Hellenization. Hellenization is just a a word for saying uh, making more Greek. That's really what it means. Uh, They would say that they they fought against that, and they did, but Greek influence is still there. So uh, where today do Jews go to worship? They go to the synagogue. Well, synagogue is a Greek word, so they've already taken that over. That's uh, the Septuagint we talked about to the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that was done by Jews into the Greek language because that was the language that a lot of people were writing in. And there were many Jewish people in the Roman Empire who understood Greek far better than they understood Hebrew or even uh, Aramaic in many cases. And so that was, a, that was a big part of what's going on. Alexander the Great did, uh, it's because of him that our New Testaments were written in Greek. Greek philosophy and monotheism, this is important in that we think of uh, Greek religion uh, like Zeus and uh, Hermes and Heracles and all that. And yes, that was still around at the time of the New Testament, but uh, the philosophers were beginning to have deeper reflection uh, upon what existence was like. And was there a God? Was there one God? Was there many gods? What was this God like? And uh, so the philosophers were getting closer to a Jewish understanding of what God was like. I don't want to say that the God of the philosophers was exactly the God of the Old Testament, but people were at least more open to a, a different understanding of God. Because in 
traditional Greek religion, you have Zeus, who is just not moral at all, right? You know, he sleeps with any woman he can get, whether she's a goddess or a human, it doesn't matter. Uh, rape, didn't, doesn't worry about that. I mean, he, he's just horrible. He's not a, a good role model for anybody. But the philosophers began to develop a, a more praiseworthy concept of God. And so that was going on in the background as well and something that we need to be uh, thinking about. In terms of the Romans, the concept of Caesar, and the, so the, the first Roman Empire uh, being Augustus, Augustus is the emperor when Jesus is born, and then uh, and Tiberius is the one who's uh, ruling while, uh, when Jesus dies. There is a narrative going on there that Caesar is Lord. And we have inscriptions that talk about this idea of Caesar is Lord. And we'll find in the New Testament, the basic Christian creed, the earliest Christian creed, was simply, Jesus is Lord. And we think, well, that doesn't tell us very much. That's not really that controversial. But it was incredibly controversial. Because as soon as you say Jesus is Lord, you're saying Caesar is not Lord. And that that's, gets you in trouble. And so some of the, the early uh, persecution that happens of Christians come about through this. And so there's uh, beginning to be some Caesar worship that's going on. And the Romans didn't care if you wanted to worship any other god. So if you want to worship Osiris, if you want to worship Zeus, if you want to uh, worship uh, Janus, any of these other gods, that's fine. But one day a year, you have to uh, burn a pinch of incense to the emperor just to demonstrate your loyalty. Christians can't do it. Even though the Romans would say, go ahead, the rest of the year, you can worship Jesus all you want, but you have to do this one thing for the emperor. And uh, they can't do it. They wouldn't do it. And so some of the, the persecution that took place was about that. So there is a narrative going on uh, in our New Testament where Jesus is pitted against Caesar and where are people going to put their loyalty. And the Romans actually saw Christians as being immoral because they thought of them as being disloyal to the emperor. That they were not people that could be trusted within the empire because of their radical allegiance to Jesus. Uh, there's also something called Pax Romana, and that is the Roman peace. And it's an interesting kind of peace, and it's good in a way in that uh, for, for some of these uh, nations, they had peace for the first time ever because they were constantly fighting back and forth, back and forth with their neighbors. There's ongoing struggles going on. I mean, just think of Israel, right? Like, for how many centuries were they caught in between Egypt on one hand and Assyria, or Babylon, or Persia, or whoever was the empire of the day uh, on the other, and they're just fighting and coming through and coming through and coming through. Well, once the Romans took over, there was peace. And this is how they had peace. They would go in and say, you're going to stop fighting, or we're going to kill every last one of you. What do you want to do? And they're like, well, you know, peace is sounding pretty good. That's okay. So even if there's ethnic hatred, uh, there's historical enmity between them and their neighbors, when you have a legion of Romans who are willing to destroy your cities, if you step out of line, all of a sudden you're forced to get along, right? That, that's what's going on. 
And that's important because that allowed Christianity to spread in a way that would have been much more difficult in other times in history because there was, there was peace. And along with that is the infrastructure, uh, Roman roads. You know, our roads break down here in Canada, uh, you know, like after a season, right, sometimes. Uh, there are Roman roads that are still in good shape. Like, it's crazy. And so some of that infrastructure allowed the, uh, the travel of Christian missionaries, and uh, it made things so much easier. So all of these things, so you have a Greek language. You don't have to translate uh, the Gospels into every possible language just to get them to a few people. Almost everyone has some knowledge of Greek, so you can get that out. People are starting to think about something beyond the traditional paganism. People understand that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar is Lord. The infrastructure is there. The peace is there. They can get the message out. And so it is the perfect timing for the spread of Christianity. Uh, a basic thing for us to understand in, as we look at the uh, synoptic Gospels is to know what a Gospel is. So we find in Mark 1.1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. So we have to ask, what is Mark saying there, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Does he mean that this is the beginning of the gospel in the way we refer to the gospel of Mark? That he's saying, the beginning of my writing about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is that what he's saying? Or is he talking about the message of Jesus Christ, the Son of God? Well, it is, it's likely that what he's referring to originally is he's just talking about the message. He's not necessarily thinking as he's writing down, oh, I am writing a gospel. He's writing about the gospel, but he's not thinking of his writing as being the genre of a gospel. But that is that has carried over to our understanding of what the message is. And since uh, the other writings, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are talking about the same story, they are talking about the gospel, and so now that has shifted over to what we refer to these writings are. They are gospels. But Mark is originally just talking about the content of the Christian message. We have those uh, two meetings. So what is the gospel? Well, as you said, the, the word gospel means good news. It comes from the Greek word euangelion. So EU, anytime you see EU in a Greek word, that means good. And angelion is messenger. So it's the same word we get angel from. So it's the, the good message that we have. So that, that's wonderful, but what is that good message? So we, we, we share it in evangelism. Uh, we share the good news, but what does it mean? Well, it actually has, in a way, a, a secular meaning to it. Originally, all it meant was... The good news of a victory. So the way it would often happen is that you would have two cities that would fight each other. So they, they send out the, uh, their armies. They would fight on the battlefield, right? And so each city is waiting to find out who won. Like, you really care about it, right? Because, well, on one hand, you might find that the enemy now is going to be outside of your city, and they're going to break down your walls and take everything you've got. Or, if your army was the one victorious... They might be bringing home a whole bunch of treasure and things are going to be great. So you really are going to care about what happens. So how do you find out? Well, you can't check Twitter, right? They're not, they're not live tweeting uh, the battle and all that kind of stuff. You know, hashtag, uh, sword in the head kind of thing. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't, that's not an option for them. So 
the, what would happen is they would have the battle, and then they would send a messenger to the home city and say, I've got good news. We won. The, the battle is over. We defeated them. Things are great. It's good news. And that's the way good news was used uh, in that time. And so there's all kinds of examples that we can look at. I'm not going to spend time in it. Here's a, just an example from uh, 2 Samuel 18 uh, where uh, that, that kind of thing is happening. And so you see a runner comes and they say that there's good news. Isaiah also talks about it now in, in more of a, a spiritual way. Uh, Spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And so that's something that Jesus identifies as, uh, as good news. So what is the good news, though? As we need to share it as Christians, what is the good news? Well, uh, many people would say that the definition of the gospel is if you believe that Jesus died on the cross, you'll go to heaven. That sounds like a pretty traditional, solid definition of gospel. But the problem is, we find in Mark 1.14, after John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee preaching the good news or the gospel of God. So, we want to ask, what was Jesus preaching? Do you think at the very beginning of his ministry, he went out and said, if you believe that I died on the cross, you will go to heaven when you die. Well, people would just think he's crazy if he said that, like, but you haven't died on the cross. But if you believe that I will die on the cross, will you then go to heaven? You know, it just it doesn't make sense. There, there has to be something, some other content to the gospel. Now, that's not to say that Jesus' death uh, is not a part of the gospel, but that is not the full content of the gospel. So we want to know what, what that was. Well, if we continue reading on, we read, uh, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. So it seems to be that the basic content of the gospel, as preached by Jesus, was that the kingdom of God had come near. The kingdom of God was arriving. Now, that does not contradict the message of Jesus dying on the cross. Because what happens when Jesus died on the cross? He defeats sin, right? Is that not a major part of the kingdom of God coming? What about when Jesus rises from the dead? He's defeating death. Is that not a part of the kingdom of God coming? So if we really want to talk about the gospel or the good news, we have to be thinking about the kingdom of God. And we're going to talk more about that later on in the course. Uh, but the, the gospel of the kingdom is, is the key concept a good way to understand what this is, I mean, I've had discussions with people and they say, well, wait a minute, no, the kingdom of God is heaven. The kingdom of God is, is not something that happens here. It, it, it only happens when you die. But that's not what Jesus says. Yes, in a way, the kingdom of God is in heaven because God rules completely in heaven, right? It's, he has full reign in heaven. There's nothing going on in heaven that is against God. So, of course, yes, that is the kingdom of God. And then people say, well, yeah, maybe it'll be on earth, but it'll be when Jesus comes, when he returns, then the kingdom of God will be here. Well, yes, in that the, the kingdom will come in its fullness, and that everything will finally be uh, put in submission to Jesus. But Jesus seems to suggest 
the kingdom of God was appearing with him and that it was growing through his ministry and would continue to grow through the ministry of the church, that the kingdom continues to grow. And a good way to look at that is uh, from the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6.10, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So that's our prayer, where we see that God's kingdom is there in heaven. We want to see that kind of stuff happening more and more on earth. We want to see God reigning in people's lives, reigning in the church, uh, reigning in our communities. It's not going to happen in its fullness uh, before Jesus returns, but it, it can happen to a certain extent. And we see that uh, Jesus uh, takes on that passage from Isaiah uh, when he is in the synagogue in Luke 3. So, uh, but we're not going to spend a lot of, lot of time on that. But that's, he, he understood himself as taking up that role. So the, the Gospels. What are the Gospels? So by the Gospels, I mean Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What are they? Well, for some people, the genre uh, that people have said are, they're Gospels. That's just what they are. Gospels are Gospels. Well, that doesn't really help us a lot. Um, but people have, have tried to argue that they are their own thing. That it's, it was a unique genre that never existed before, and it was just there. And some Christians have argued that, and that sometimes has uh, come back to bite us in that when dealing with the historicity of Jesus, then some critics, some skeptics will say, well, we can't use the Gospels because they're not even historical writings. or are these weird things called Gospels. So why should we even take them seriously? So some scholars have then looked carefully at them and said, do these writings have anything in common with other writings? Because like when we look at Paul's letters... We can look at them, and we have other letters. We can compare Paul's letters to other letters that were written at the same time, in the same general area, and they are formatted the same way, where they'll start off with a, a greeting, uh, with a thanksgiving, with the body, with the conclusion, and we see, well, what Paul's following the, the actual genre. Even the book of Revelation. Revelation didn't come up with that genre of apocalyptic literature. There was already a Jewish genre of apocalyptic literature that Revelation follows. And all the other books that we have in the Bible, the, the uh, wisdom literature, there already was a genre of wisdom literature. The historical books, there was already that. We have the book of Acts in the New Testament. It's very much like other historical books. So what are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? And uh, a lot of study has gone into that. And basically, it's been concluded uh, that they, the Gospels belong to the genre of bioi. So bio as in life. So bioi is the plural, lives, uh, similar to the bioi written by authors such as Plutarch. So Plutarch was a, uh, a writer who lived around uh, 200 AD, and he wrote a whole bunch of, like ancient biographies. So people, they're hesitant to call them biographies, because as soon as we say biography, we think of a modern biography. A modern biography, we want to see a lot of background, uh, you know, about the, the, uh, the family, uh, the childhood. We want to see some reflection on the psychological factors that was leading the person to act the way they did. A lot of details that we don't have in our Gospels. But those details aren't in the ancient lives either, the ancient biographies. So, yeah, we, the Gospels are not modern biographies because, guess what, they were written 2,000 years ago. We shouldn't expect them to be modern biographies. 
but they fit very nicely into this already existing genre of ancient biography or byway or lives or however you want to describe them. So that has uh, really come to be the consensus of that. Uh, a scholar named Richard Burridge says that the picture has now emerged of the genre of byway nestling between history encomium, which is a, a writing or speech in praise of someone, and moral philosophy with overlaps and relationships in all directions. So there, there's something that we can actually take seriously as historical literature. But are they just histories? What about theology? And Mark Strauss from our textbook says, while the Gospels are meant to be historical, they are more than unbiased news reports. They are theological documents written to instruct and encourage believers and to convince unbelievers of the truth of their message. This is evident in that they focus especially on the saving work accomplished through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, yes, the, uh, the Gospels are theological. They have a theological agenda. And there are skeptics who have said, there you go, we cannot trust the Gospels because they are theological. Anything that's theological, we have to throw out. It has to be purely historical. It has to be completely unbiased. Otherwise, we can't look at it. Well, you know what? That kind of literature does not exist. You look at any ancient history, ancient biography, and you will be able to identify that that particular author had a uh, religious, a philosophical, political, or all three bias in what they were writing. So Josephus, you know, we use him as a major source for reconstructing what was happening in the first century in uh, Judea and Galilee. And yet we know he's got a major bias, right? So he is a Pharisee who is defected to the Romans. He's biased. But we use him because he's our source. That's what we got. So you, you're, you should be aware of the bias that's there. We should be aware of the theological... Um, uh, agendas of our gospel writers, because they do, and that's part of what we're going to be looking at in this course, but that doesn't mean we dismiss them as not being historical. So as we, we read the gospels, one of the things we have to remember is that, yes, as Christians we believe that the gospels are inspired by the Holy Spirit, but they are incarnated in first century form. So I see uh, in some ways, there's a parallel between inspiration of the Bible and the incarnation of, of Jesus, right? That we believe that Jesus is fully God and fully human. Similar way, the Bible is both divine and human. So, inspiration, the Christian doctrine of inspiration is not that God verbally spoke and Paul or whoever just you know, just wrote down as a secretary, you know, uh, you know, from Paul, okay, from Paul. No, that's not the way it worked. They, they were writing uh, in their context, but the Holy Spirit was using that. But they were incarnated in first century form. So sometimes people will look at our Gospels and they'll say, you know, that's not as precise as I would like. So for example, the, uh, when Jesus is crucified, there's a sign that's put on the cross above them. If you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of them record that message slightly different. It's not given in the exact same form. And as 21st century Western people, we might think, well, no, I don't like that. I want exact precision. I want a 
a photograph that has the exact spelling and everything down, because that's, that's what I consider accuracy. But in the first century, the diversity of how that's uh, recorded was well within reasonable limits for search first century biography and history. So we have to, to read the Bible in context and not get hung up on some of our 21st century um, definitions. They should, uh, they should not be written as 21st century Western documents. They should be read as ancient biographies and they should be held to those standards. So people look for errors in, uh, in the Gospels, but what would an error be if they are not as concerned about being completely precise in everything that they say, and that's the way it was in the ancient world, then is it an error? If you're not trying to be precise in that way. So if I tell you that when I came in today, uh, it felt like my backpack weighed a ton. Yeah, you could point your finger and say, Steve Bedard, you are lying. Because I guarantee you that backpack does not weigh a ton. I know that you're lying. But am I lying? No, I wasn't lying because I wasn't trying to give you a scientific description of how heavy my backpack was. I was just saying it, it felt kind of heavy today. So I'm not trying to be precise in terms of weight. It's the same thing. There are certain, uh, there's a certain variety that we're going to come across as we compare Jesus in the synoptics. And they're not errors because those are not things that the ancients would even have recognized as an error. It w there was uh, diversity, there was flexibility that was allowed. So I, I like this uh, quote again from Richard Burge. The, the first implication of all of this is that any idea of the Gospels is unique, uh, sui generis, that means, uh, uh, just means unique, works is a nonsense. Authors cannot create and readers cannot interpret a total novelty. The second implication is that we must have the same generic expectations as the author and his original readers. Trying to decode the Gospels through the genre of modern biography when the author encoded his message in the genre of ancient bios will lead to an, another nonsense. Blaming the text for not containing modern predilections, which it was never meant to contain. So uh, that's, that's, a, that's a good word for us. Uh, so we are reading uh, the Gospels, and they belong to our canon, but what about all those other Gospels? Perhaps you've heard of uh, Gospels beyond that. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but what about all those other ones? Did anyone here ever read uh, the Da Vinci Code? Remember the Da Vinci Code? Yeah, it was, it was an okay book. Not a great book, but it was an okay book. Uh, it was horrible history, though. If you want it, just as, I, I kind of like the puzzles, part, but that, that was it. Uh, so these are a couple of quotes from the Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code. Constantine commissioned and financed a new Bible which omitted those Gospels that spoke of Christ's human traits and embellished those Gospels that made him godlike. The earlier Gospels were outlawed, gathered up, and burned. More than 80 Gospels were considered for the New Testament, and yet only a relative few were chosen for inclusion. So I have two comments about that, false and false. Almost everything on the screen there is completely false. So, first of all, Constantine did not come up with the Gospels or the canon. He did not develop the canon. That was not what was going on. That's not what happened at the Council of Nicaea. Also, uh, he says that the other Gospels are the ones that spoke Christ's human traits. 
When you read these other Gospels, that is not correct. In fact, they do not present a more human Gospel. They present a more divine Gospel. These are Gnostic Gospels that denied that Jesus even had flesh. They believed that he was just a pure spirit being. And it's, it's a far more exalted kind of Christ. Uh, and so the incarnation is not even a part of that. So that's wrong. And then he calls them the earlier Gospels. That's wrong as well. The only first century Gospels there are, are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And all four made it into the canon. The earliest anything else is in, is in the early second century. Many of them go into the third and fourth century. So he's wrong there as well. And there wasn't 80 Gospels. So we're going to look at the, the myths and, uh, and facts here. Uh, there were much fewer than 80 Gospels that were written. Uh, the extra-canonical Gospels are later, not earlier. Constantine and the Council of Nicaea had nothing to do with choosing the books of the New Testament. The four canonical Gospels were agreed upon very early on. So you, you often hear about the Council of Nicaea in 325. Uh, it was an important council. That's where we get the, the Nicene Creed. A lot of very important things happened there, but it had nothing to do with choosing the books of the Bible. Uh, it was rather called to deal with the Arian heresy, was basically, uh, was Jesus a created being, or was he co-eternal with the Father? That's what the Council of Nicaea is about. There it is. So it's not about choosing the books of the Bible. So, canon of scripture. We need to know what that is. That's important. Uh, those books viewed by the church as authoritative and so fit to be included in the Bible. Protestants, Roman Catholics, and Orthodox Christians agree on the 27 books of the New Testament canon, though differ on whether to include the Apocrypha in the Old Testament canon. So that's an important definition for us. Uh, Gnosticism, which I've briefly mentioned, uh, a religious movement which claimed adherents gained salvation through secret knowledge of their true heavenly origin. So gnosis is the Greek word for knowledge, and uh, there's all kinds of different versions of it, but basically uh, normal people didn't have the secret knowledge, but you could gain this knowledge and this uh, brought you to a new spiritual level that you could understand things like uh, the flesh is bad, the spirit is good. So it, there was some overlap with uh, Platonic philosophy, and that's where some of that came in. And actually Gnosticism still affects us in the church. Uh, when you'll often hear uh, uh, Christians say, you know, oh, I can't wait to be free of my, my human body. I'm, 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 I'm in bondage to this flesh, and I just can't wait to be the pure spirit that God has created us to be. That's not a biblical, that's not a biblical teaching. The biblical teaching is that the body is good, and our ultimate hope is not to be disembodied spirits, but to, have, to experience the resurrection of the body. When Jesus returns, we will receive resurrection bodies, that, which are, are physical. They, they, they're able to pick up things and, and eat and move around and whatever. You're not going to be you know, Casper the friendly ghost you know, floating around or anything like that. Um, but we have been affected by these, these Gnostic ideas uh, through Platonic philosophy, uh, and it, it's still there. And I, I still talk to Christians who have never heard uh, that Christians will experience a resurrection of the body. They honestly believe that all we will ever be is floating spirits in heaven. Uh, but that's, that's not... If, it, if you read through the Gospels carefully, which you better for this class, 
Uh, read through Paul's letters, and you'll find very little about um, our existence in heaven. Almost <coughs> all of it, when it comes to the afterlife, is about the resurrection of the body. That is, That was the Jewish teaching at the, at the time, and it was uh, the Christian teaching from the beginning. So, the canon. What about all those Gospels? Do we have the right Gospels? Well, we have a number of canon lists. Even before the official canon was finally accepted the way it is today, we have these different canon lists. And so the first one is the Muratorian Fragment, which is uh, from about 170 to 200 AD. And uh, so I'm only going to talk about the Gospels here. So there's uh, these deal with the other books of the New Testament as well, but that's not our concern. So what we find in this earliest one, we have the four Gospels, no others. That's it. So just our, our four. Uh, Origin of Alexandria. He was an, uh, an early church father, and uh, he talked a lot about the Bible, and he actually has a conversation about the Gospels, and he includes our four plus no others. That's it. Okay. Then we have Eusebius of Caesarea, and this is around 311. So Eusebius, he is uh, living around uh, the time of, of uh, Constantine, and around the, so 325 is the, uh, the Council of Nicaea, so this is where he is at. And so around 311, he provides a, a canon list, and he includes our four Gospels, and then he mentions the Gospel of the Hebrews, but only to say that it's non-canonical. So he doesn't include any other of the Gospels as a part of the canon. And then we have Cyril of Jerusalem from around 350. And he has our four Gospels. And the only thing he talks about is he criticizes the Gospel of Thomas. But nothing else that he's approvingly saying belongs to the canon. And then we have uh, uh, the Momsen uh, catalog. This is around 359. Our four Gospels and no others. So you're starting to see a, a theme here. Uh, and then uh, we have Athanasius of Alexandria around 367. Uh, he has a letter here. This is the first time we have the complete list of everything that is exactly the way we have it in our New Testament. That's not to say uh, that everything was wide open, but this is the, the first time it's exactly the way it is in our New Testament. And uh, so, of course, it's just the, the four Gospels. So what I want you to see is there's no collection or no list that has maybe like Matthew and Mark and then Thomas and Philip or uh, the Gospel to the Egyptians or the Gospel of the Nazarenes or whatever. It just it doesn't happen. That's not to say that these Gospels aren't around, but they're never included in a canon list. Even the heretic Marcion, who was... Uh, uh, basically like a proto-Gnostic, uh, he came up with his own canon, but even then, his canon was the Gospel of Luke, which he, edit, he edits out all the, the Jewish stuff and all the Old Testament stuff, and Paul's letters. So, even as a heretic, he doesn't get a, a bigger canon, he just uh, collapses the canon more and has less books. Uh, and we can also see in that there are collections, even when it's not just a list, uh, of uh, books, there are manuscripts in which different books are put together, and we don't have any of these that in, that are the kind of book that include 
what would be considered orthodox books of the New Testament uh, with one of these weird gospels stuck in. It, that just does not happen. We don't have them. So, yes, there were people who were reading these other gospels, but they never included it with the other things. There never seems to be a debate about which gospels belong to the Christian canon. There was debate about the canon, but basically, almost right from the beginning, people agreed that there was the four gospels and Paul's letters. Okay, That they knew. There was some talk about some of the other things, and I'll share what they are in a moment, but the Gospels were agreed upon very, very early, like early 2nd century. They're already agreeing with it. The the main questions that people had were 2nd Peter, 2nd and 3rd John, and sometimes Hebrews. Okay? Now, I am willing, not that I am a gambling man, but I'm willing to put down money that you have never missed a whole night of sleep, whole night of sleep, worried that maybe Third John didn't belong in the New Testament canon, that you thought your salvation was completely based on the message of Third John. I am willing. Well, I'm not going to put money on it because I'm not going to do that. But I'm, I'm pretty confident. So there was, yeah, there was some question about those books. The problem with Hebrews wasn't even the content. It was, some people were saying, well, I think Paul wrote Hebrews, but uh, it's kind of different than Paul. Maybe he didn't write Hebrews. And so it was that kind of question that was going on that they were debating whether or not to to keep Hebrews. It was never a, a problem with what was in Hebrews. It was just they weren't sure if Paul didn't write Hebrews, should it still be in? And so ultimately we generally accepted that Paul did not write Hebrews, but it did get accepted as part of it. And uh, as I said, we don't have any of the apocryphal Gospels, uh, the collections found in Christian Scripture. And we also find that the uh, early Christian apologists often quoted the apocryphal Gospels at length. So you'll often hear people say, oh, the church tried to um, suppress these Gospels. Well, they did a horrible job of it because when you read these early church fathers, they quote... Like, not just, like, two or three words by these guys. They, like, it's almost plagiarism. Like, just, you know, paragraph after paragraph. Like, we could reconstruct these things. A lot of these Gospels, we didn't get the full text of them until, again, back into the 1940s, around the time uh, that the Dead Sea Scrolls were uh, were, uh, discovered. There was also another major discovery, the Nag Hammadi Library, which was in Egypt, which contained a lot of these... Gnostic Gospels and, and other Gnostic writings. But a lot of this stuff we had been able to reconstruct from the Church Fathers because they quoted them at length. So uh, be careful when people uh, say that uh, these, these things uh, have been suppressed. So the Gospel of Thomas is one of the, the most popular of the non-canonical ones. Um, and sometimes it's put forward as having authentic sayings of Jesus. And it probably is the earliest of these apocryphal Gospels, but that's not to say that it really has much in terms of authentic sayings, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, you may have heard of the Jesus Seminar. That was a number of decades ago. But anyways, they, they did a, a study, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit, uh, about trying to determine what did Jesus really say. What did the historical Jesus actually say? 
and what was made up by the church. And when they did that, they included Thomas in that, and they went through and they put Thomas on an equal footing with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, just to, to demonstrate how uh, some people uh, understood Thomas. Now, the thing is, Thomas was not written by Thomas, okay? Thomas was probably written sometime in the mid-2nd century. So Thomas is, is long dead by the time this thing is written. Uh, it contains um, 114 sayings, but no narrative. So there's not stories about Jesus going and doing this and going and doing that. Rather, it's about just Jesus saying things. So it's very different from our Gospels. I'm going to just give you a little taste of what it is, because you might wonder, well, why, why don't we have Thomas? Maybe Thomas is a great thing. Maybe I'd like to have uh, a Gospel of Thomas bumper sticker on the back of my car, uh, just to represent my Jesus fish. Well, maybe not. Uh, this is one of them. Jesus said, lucky is the lion that the human will eat, so that the lion becomes human, and follows the human that the lion will eat, and the lion still will become human. What does that mean? Does that mean anything? Is that even a thing? Like, that's nothing. That's, it's like, to, to me, that reminds me of, of sort of the Buddhist reflection, you know, the sound of one hand clapping. Like, that's the kind of mysticism that's going on here. That does not sound anything like the, uh, the kind of sayings that we have in our Gospels. You know, like when, when, when Jesus says, you know, uh, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be uh, sons of God. Okay, we can understand what that is. So, it's good to make peace. We are being like our Heavenly Father. It's good for us to work toward... So, we, we can understand. We can interpret that. That means nothing. Lucky is the lion. That's... No. I'm not, not interested. Uh, here's another one. Um, Jesus said, The Father's kingdom is like a person who has good seed. His enemy came during the night and sowed weeds among the good seed. The person did not let the workers pull up the weeds, but said to them, No, otherwise you might go to pull up the weeds and pull up the weed along with them, for on the day of the harvest the weeds will be conspicuous and we pulled up and burned. So this is very close to something we have in the Synoptic Gospels, but this is more likely that uh, whoever wrote Thomas is borrowing from that. Um, here's a, another one. Uh, again, you know, people will say the, the, uh, uh, the horribly uh, misogynist church, the patriarchal powers have suppressed these wonderful gospels. But this is, listen to this. Simon Peter said to them, Make Mary leave us, for females don't deserve life. Jesus said, Look, I will guide her to make her male, so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every female who makes herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, can you imagine, what would happen in, in your church if you put that bumper sticker on your car? Every female who makes herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, would the ladies' group be happy with you? Would they be saying, you know, good for you for standing up for the gospel of Thomas? Probably not. Um, so it is actually, when we look at the gospels, we're going to find that um, Jesus and what we, the Jesus we find in the Synoptic Gospels is actually uh, radically pro-woman compared to the context, far more than what you find here in the Gospel of Thomas. The idea that, you have, that women have to become like men to enter into the kingdom of heaven, that's crazy. Uh, so I'm not, I don't like uh, the Gospel of Thomas, but there's a different book called the Infancy Gospel of Thomas. Not the same thing. 
So the Gospel of Thomas is just sayings. Uh, the infancy Gospel of Thomas is uh, our stories. So uh, you might have wondered, you know, what was it like for Jesus to be a kid, right? be kind of interesting to know. You know, like, did he have his superpowers as a kid? You know, the, the Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, I think, seem to hint he didn't really perform miracles until he received the Holy Spirit at his baptism. That's what, that's my understanding of, of what was going on. But anyways, people, people wondered, what was it like for Mary and Joseph to raise little kid Jesus? What was it like for his teachers? Can you imagine being his junior high teacher? Uh, well, people used their imagination and wrote Gospels to fill in the blanks. And one of my favorites is the Infancy Gospel of Thomas. It's wonderful stuff. So, I, I, like the Gospel of Thomas, uh, it was not written by Thomas. It was probably written sometime in the mid to late uh, second century. So, here's a, here's a passage. And a certain Jew, when he saw what Jesus did, playing upon the Sabbath day, departed straightway and told his father Joseph, Lo! Thy child is at the brook, and he hath taken clay and fashioned twelve little birds, and hath polluted the Sabbath day. And Joseph came to the place and saw, and cried out to him, saying, Wherefore dost thou these things on the Sabbath, which it is not lawful to do? But Jesus clapped his hands together, and cried out to the sparrows, and said to them, Go! And the sparrows took their flight, and went away chirping. And when the Jews saw it, they were amazed, and departed, and told their chief men that which they had seen Jesus do. So there's Jesus playing on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to be playing on Sabbath. He's making mud cakes. And uh, he gets rebuked by Joseph. So he performs a miracle, turns them into birds, and the birds fly away. Which is an interesting story. Now this is something that I find very interesting. So that's the infancy gospel of Thomas. This is from the Quran. Okay? When Allah will say, O Jesus, Son of Mary, remember my favor to thee and to thy mother, when I strengthen thee with the Holy Spirit, thou spokest to the people... In the cradle and in old age, and when I taught thee the book and the wisdom and the Torah and the gospel, and when thou didst determine out of a clay a thing like the form of a bird by permission, then thou didst breathe into it, and it became a bird by my permission. Uh, so this, this uh, tradition of little kid Jesus turning clay into birds passed on into the Quran. And there's actually a couple of passages in the Quran that pull from these Gnostic-type ideas uh, about Jesus. But uh, that's not my, uh, my favorite one. Here's my, my favorite one from the uh, infancy gospel of Thomas. After that again, he went through the village, and a child ran and dashed against his shoulder. And Jesus was provoked and said unto him, Thou shalt not finish thy course. And immediately he fell down and died. But certain, when they saw what was done, said, Hence was this young child born, for that every word of his is an accomplished work, and the parents of him that was dead came unto Joseph and blamed him, saying, Thou that hast such a child canst not dwell with us in the village, or do thou teach him to bless and not to curse, for he slayeth our children. So another kid bumps into him, and Jesus knocks him dead. You don't, you don't bump into little Jesus. He's going to take you out like that. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it's kind of entertaining now, but like, it's, uh, do you really wonder why this is not in our canon? Like, are you thinking... Who, who made these decisions? Did they make the right decisions? Uh, my advice to people who worry about this is actually to read these other Gospels. You can find them all online. Read them. Read the Gospels that are in the New Testament and ask yourself, which sound more rational? Which sound more like history? Which sound more like rooted in real 
events, and our four Gospels will win every time. Uh, not gonna, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but uh, Gospel of Peter is another one that gets brought up. Uh, it's not written by Peter, probably late, uh, mid to late 2nd century. So uh, it's, uh, it talk, uh, F.F. Bruce here talks about uh, uh, docetism. Docetism means, it's from the Greek word to seem. And what that means is uh, the docetists believe that uh, Jesus only seemed to be human. He never had a human body. He just he looked like it. He was like a, a hologram kind of thing. Uh, there was no actual bone or blood or muscles or anything like that. Because they bought into this platonic idea that body is bad, spirit is good. Jesus is good, Jesus is spirit. Simple, right? So, anyways, this is what F.F. F. Bruce says. The Docetic note in this narrative appears in the statement that Jesus, while being crucified, remained silent as though he felt no pain. And in the account of his death, it carefully avoids saying that he died, preferring to say that he was taken up as though he, or at least his soul or spiritual self, was assumed direct from the cross to the presence of God. We shall see an echo of this idea in the Quran. Then the cry of dereliction is reproduced in a form which suggests that at that moment his divine power left the bodily shell in which it had taken up temporary residence. All right, and this is a, um, a little portion of uh, the Gospel of Peter. We don't actually have the whole Gospel of Peter, but it's the only Gospel we have that actually describes the, the actual resurrection events, right? Because in our Gospels, he's buried, and then uh, people show up, and there's an empty tomb, and so we understand that, it's, uh, that Jesus is raised, but we're not really given a description or Gospels of Jesus coming out of the tomb for the first time. And so the Gospel of Peter uh, fills in those gaps. Uh, but in the night in which the Lord's day dawned, when the soldiers were safeguarding it, two by two in every watch, there was a loud voice in heaven. And they saw that the heavens were opened, and that the two males, who had much radiance, had come down from there and come near the sepulchre. But that stone, which had been thrust against the door, having rolled by itself, went a distance off the side, and the sepulchre opened, and both the young men entered. And so those soldiers, having seen, awakened the centurion and the elders, for they too were present safeguarding. And while they were relating what they had seen, again they see three males who have come out from the sepulchre, with the two supporting the other one, and a cross following them and the head of the two reaching unto heaven, but that of the one being led out by hand by them, going beyond the heavens. And they were hearing a voice from the heavens saying, Have you made the proclamation to the fallen asleep? Beseance was heard from the cross. Yes. So, did you catch what's going on here? So the, resurrect, so the tombs opened, and uh, Jesus comes out with the angels. But these aren't just angels, they're giant angels, so their heads are up into the clouds which is amazing, except for Jesus is a super giant. So their heads are in the clouds, but his head is like above the clouds. He's like huge. And if that's not amazing enough, the cross itself, how it got in the tomb, I don't know, but the cross itself is also walking out. And not only does it walk out, when it's asked by God if it has preached, it answers uh, obediently, yes, yes, I have done my preaching. So it's got a walking, talking cross, giant angels, giant Jesus, why isn't this in our Gospels? Well, there you go. It's, uh, it's pretty wild. It is, it's, just in, it's in a completely different world. Uh, another uh, Gospel that is kind of different 
is something called the secret gospel of Mark. And you'll still hear some people think and believe that this is an actual uh, ancient gospel, but it, it's unlikely. So I say the gospel was discovered, and I put that in quotes, by Morton Smith in 1958, because it's not clear that it was actually discovered. Uh, many scholars believe that it was a hoax, that Mark, Morton Smith, and, and he was a, a recognized, respected uh, scholar, but it's believed by many that uh, this gospel was a hoax. There's no reason to believe that there was an, uh, an original or alternative version of the Gospel of Mark. So basically the story, you don't really need to know a lot about it, but uh, he claimed that he was in this library and he was looking in this book of uh, writings by an early church father, I think it was Clement, and um, in the back there was this handwritten note of this secret Gospel of Mark. And it had a little bit, some similarity with our Gospel of Mark, but it was different. And so it actually, it, it actually takes the the story of the raising of Lazarus, and uh, and kind of combines it with the story in Mark about um, you, you know the at the crucifixion where the the young man runs away naked uh, that he loses his they try to get him and they grab his cloak and he runs away naked it combines that and in the gospel secret gospel of Mark the way it's it's kind of described is that Jesus raises this young man, but here it's not Lazarus, raises this young man from the dead, and then they spend some time naked, and maybe Jesus has some relations with them. And that. And it just so happens that Morton Smith was homosexual. Now, that's not to say that I'm like throwing up this, this gay uh, uh, conspiracy or anything like that, and that's not the reason why people think it's a hoax. There was all kinds of little hints found there that really suggested that this is a complete hoax that Morton Smith made up. And in fact, he eventually couldn't even show them where this original thing was. The, the book went missing. So, but you'll, you will still find there are some people who will claim that the secret gospel of Mark was the original version of Mark, and the Mark that we have is a cleaned up version that eventually uh, we have. But... I don't buy it, and most scholars don't buy it either. It, it, it's quite interesting. And actually, there, there, uh, there are um, photographs, I believe, of the, uh, of the writing, and there have been some um, handwriting experts who have compared it to Morton Smith's own writing, and, uh, and there has been evidence that he indeed uh, forged this. So... Yeah, I, I, I don't think we should worry too much about the, the secret gospel of Mark. It probably only goes back to 1958. So, why are these four gospels in our canon? Well, they're the only ones from the first century. Uh, people are saying, well, you know, we're being really secretive. We're suppressing those that have teachings that we disagree with. No, it's open to all the gospels that were written in the first century. It just so happens there's only four of them. There's no other options, nothing else. They're the only ones written also during the lifetime of the eyewitnesses of Jesus. They're the only ones that really fit the genre of the ancient bioi or lives. So like the Gospel of Thomas, which is probably one of the earliest of these uh, non-canonical Gospels, it's not really a, it's not a bioi, it's not a life, it's not an ancient biography. 
it's just a collection of sayings. That's all it is. And all these other things that we have, none of them fit that same kind of sober biography. Everything else is just completely radical. I mean, the, the fact that you have walking, talking crosses tells you something. Uh, the others are very fanciful and are closer in style to myth. There's also a continuity in theology and thought between the canonical Gospels and the other New Testament writings and the early church fathers. So uh, probably uh, Paul's letters are earlier than our Gospels, and we find that they fit very nicely in there. What the Gospel writers say and what Paul says fit very nice. And then we have the church fathers, who we have some from the late 1st century, uh, and then more so into the 2nd century. Similar theology going on there and not what we find in these other Gospels. Honestly, I have not even shared the most radical. Like when you read them, you just be shaking your head as to what is going on. I mean, within the Gnostic mythology, uh, they're saying that the, the God of the Old Testament is not the God of the Father of Jesus Christ um, because they're, they're influenced by this idea that all matter, not only flesh is evil, but all matter is evil, right? So... Why would God create a world of physical matter if it's evil? Well, it must be an evil God, or at least a deluded God, that did that. And so the whole Gnostic mythology is all of these other things trying to repair uh, what this the Old Testament God messed up by creating a physical planet, and uh, Jesus is working through that, and that's one of the things that Jesus is doing, is imparting uh, true knowledge to people so they can realize. Once you realize that your body is evil, matter is evil, that all that matters is spirit, and then you can escape uh, all the things that are going on. So it's, but it gets, even that is a simple, simplified version. If you read it for yourself, honestly, you would just be shaking your head. Back to F.F. Bruce. It is especially important to hear in mind that the fixing of the New Testament canon was not the arbitrary work of a church council. When at last, in AD 393, a church council drew up a list of the New Testament books, it simply confirmed the canonical recognition that was already well established as the general consensus of Christians. And in this matter, the early Christians were certainly guided by a wisdom higher than their own, as may be seen in what they rejected as much as in what they accepted. We could not improve upon their direction, but enlightened by the witness of the Spirit who guided them, we too recognized in the New Testament the books which were given by inspiration of God to stand alongside the books of the Old Covenant, the Bible of Christ and his apostles, and to make up with them the complete volume of God's word written. And that's, a, that's a good word for us.